Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to lawyers, the business of law, and how we can better solve the access to justice crisis that continues to fly under the radar. On the show today, we are excited to welcome Tom Freeman, General Counsel at Midwest Laboratories, Adjunct Professor of Law at Creighton University, and founding member of the Institute for Digital Humanity. Tom joins us to discuss some of the issues facing the legal profession, including the billable hour and some of the consequences associated with this method of pricing legal services, how technology will impact the practice of law, and some of the unintended consequences that will need to be carefully navigated with its implementation, and the problems with the purely theoretical teaching model currently in place at most law schools. For any of you interested in hearing more from Tom, please do yourself a favor and check out his excellent LinkedIn page where he has helped build an impressive and diverse community of people discussing many of the important issues surrounding law and lawyers. Links to his profile are included in the show notes. All right, that's it for me. I hope you get as much out of today's show as I know I did. Tom, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you guys? Doing well. It is, uh, we don't usually release these podcasts until a, a few weeks later, but it is cold here as we were discussing this yeah, the show. A bombing yeah. minus 28 or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you guys my seen, dog... the... oh, there's a Facebook meme. Why do I live somewhere where the air hurts my face? Truer words. I have. (laughs) And truer words. My dog is a husky who loves the cold weather. And even he is going a little bit mental with this because he can't go outside. It's just too cold. So uh, we're dealing with it. But I'm hoping it's a little bit better. You're you're coming to us from from Omaha. Yeah, Omaha, Nebraska, in the United States. Yeah, so I think you're hopefully getting a little bit better than us. But uh, I know everyone's suffering at the moment. So let's jump right in here. you're a man with, you know, an extensive re- resume, in-house counsel, adjunct professor, and technological ethics consultant. But maybe in your, your own words, can you just give our listeners a bit of a background on yourself? Sure. I am, um, I like to introduce myself first as a, a husband and father. I've got two kids, um, and they're 10 and 7. And then I work full-time as in-house counsel, as you mentioned, here at a local company, adjunct at Creighton in the law school and the business college, former assistant attorney general for the state and then help with um, technological ethics consulting for the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL. Excellent. So that seems like you have a fairly full docket. Which one takes up most of your time? Um, probably the kids. So. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, the young well, kids, I, I can get that. And, and we forgot LinkedIn influencer, whether he likes it or not. Oh, trying, try just trying to make a difference, you know. Um, you know, we'll be talking a lot about billable hours and some of the things with the legal profession today. And Unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues aren't in a position where they can really complain about it. They're stuck in an environment where they're judged based on billable hours and, you know, maybe the partners or people they work with are reading their posts. So absolutely. But before we jump into that, because we are going to get there, uh, (laughs) I I thought we just maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your role in creating eBay's community court? I I saw that on your LinkedIn profile and I found that just fascinating because that was uh, I think in the early days, one of the most important parts of making that whole site function, was it not? You know, um, I worked at PayPal prior to law school and then got involved with Colin Rule, and he was sort of the spearhead of that, and um, Shitu Nagaran, and then um, Eric Tang, who was a student um, along with me, 
post law school, I did a master's degree in negotiation and dispute resolution. And then our, our practicum was to help get that rolling. So it was basically eBay buyers and sellers were getting in disputes over purchases on eBay. eBay didn't want to be involved. They were devoting huge amounts of resources to resolving those conflicts. And then the thought process was, well, how do we make this a user driven system? And we basically set up a jury system. So you'd have big time buyers and sellers who would be impaneled on the jury, all voluntary. And then the parties would voluntarily agree or not to participate. And they'd basically make their cases and submit evidence. And then the jury of their eBay peers would vote on who wins or loses. That's super fascinating. How, how did that work out well? Yeah. Yeah. It actually won the Lab Rats Award, um, the PayPal Awards to a new innovation. And then um, they rolled it out in eBay India as kind of a trial wow. run. It ended up really becoming part of a part of, I wouldn't say the birth of online conflict resolution, but certainly a big piece of it. Colin Rule went on to uh, Modria, and I, he, I forget where he's at now, but he's still involved in kind of a heavy hitter in online dispute resolution. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, when I saw that, I'm like, wow, that like I know of that program that you guys developed. And, and to your point, it, it was sort of the forebearer of a lot of the online dispute resolution that we now see. So that must have been fairly rewarding, especially as you said, a master's project that got you involved with that. Yeah, it was my master's practicum. After law school, I was doing a master's degree in negotiation. Yeah, yeah. what what a cool master! Like, what about like a tangible, productive way to you know yeah. do a practicum? <laughs> Very beneficial to eBay, to say the least. Yeah, well, and it was so fun because you're designing from scratch. What would a conflict resolution system for these type of problems look like? And then because they were trial marketing it or test marketing it in India, then you're figuring out with these people who actually live and work in India and are from there based on their cultural norms or the laws there, how do we make it also compatible with that? Mm-hmm. So lots, lots of moving parts and just a lot of fun. Everybody involved with it was great to work with. Yeah. That's a little excellent. more, a little more bartering in India than uh, we're accustomed to certainly in Canada. A very cool project. But uh, so why don't we transition to what we already alluded to? And that is the almighty billable hour. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, read you a statement that, I, that is a little redundant, as I'm sure you will fully agree with it. But but here it goes. Uh, the billable hour is the perfect system for a fair and efficient billing and has never caused once an unintended consequence. Agree or disagree? Uh, disagree <laughs> <laughs> and maybe elaborate a little bit on that because uh, you have where, that where did where'd the quote come from Matt? Uh, i just made quote? that up yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> i was just trying to figure out who would say that and not be yeah. <laughs> absolutely it was it was a touch sar- sarcastic absolutely you know i i focused on it and i you know obviously here because i posted on linkedin I've, I've made a few posts about this and kind of went into detail about how it causes problems for lawyers but my focus initially was on the mental health issues it causes for lawyers just by skewing work-life balance in very unhealthy ways. And you start in law school as a a young law student, really, where you feel like there's a clock always ticking over your head. And every moment you spend with family or friends is a moment you should be studying. And there are these gunners in that environment who, you know, claim that they are studying 26 hours a day, eight hours a week. And you feel like you have to compete with them. So once you're a lawyer, then if you go into the firms or into a billable hour environment, it it continues. And in some degree, in some ways it gets worse. I mean, you are marketing and selling, you've basically commoditized the only thing you can't get more of, which is time. And then you have to choose. Every hour, every minute you spend with family or spend with friends or spend on a personal project, maybe an art project, maybe something you find really fulfilling, maybe community service is a moment that you're not billing. 
And you're always torn about that and in conflict about that. And your, your loyalties are always divided. And it causes attorneys a, a great deal of distress. Totally. And, and, I, and I love how you started that with what is the problem of the billable hour for lawyers? Because at Good Lawyer, you know, our focus is really, you know, connecting lawyers and entrepreneurs, but really it's been more focused on the problems the billable hour, you know, presents to, in our case, entrepreneurs who are looking for, you know, affordable legal help and just some price certainty like they're used to in pretty much all other purchase decisions. But I, I love your focus on how it impacts the lawyers negatively. Cause I totally agree with you. It gets you on this, you know, hamster wheel of just like trying to pound out as many hours as you possibly can for the purpose of pumping out as many hours as you possibly can. You know, there's, there's often not a greater purpose than that. And that was the part that I found in practice that I really struggled with. It wasn't about this, you know, how much value are we creating? How are we helping our clients? It was just how many hours did you build today? And you know, how many hours did you spend walking around the office, you know, trying to connect with people? That's just not provided any sort of incentive or, you know, from the higher ups really creating the value that they're looking for or that they're asking for. And it does a huge disservice to the clients too, because are you going to call the client and have a friendly conversation with them? And then you have to decide, okay, can I build that? Can I not build that? Am I networking with the client? Am I going to their, driving over to their business to see how the operation works? Is that social or is that business? Do I build that? Do I not build that? And then obviously you have pretty skewed incentives when the client's motivation is to get this done well quickly and thus cheaply and the firm and the attorney's motivation is to really draw it out as long as they can so that they get the maximum billing for it they can yeah yeah within the within the bounds of justification absolutely yeah Yeah, totally I was thinking about that actually last night when I was driving home and I saw a taxi in front of me. I made a, a jump to uh, an analogy with the billable hour in the sense that what if a taxi was incentivized just solely on the minute? And, you know, they would have that incentive to slow down, right? Or to take a longer route or whatever. And even though most people probably would only do that to a certain extent, there's always that ex- incentive that exists. And, you know, at, at a certain point, you have to figure that, yeah, that that does come into conflict where as, as a consumer, what you want is to get home as quickly as possible, like without breaking the law and speeding yeah. or whatever, but you want to get this done. But if you've traveled at all, you've probably been in that taxi that takes the roundabout route and, you know, drives up the price. I think the difference is most of the time when you're taking a cab, you know where you're going. So there's less leeway for exposure for the, for the customer. Whereas mm-hmm. when it comes to the world of law, if I'm a business owner, or if I'm a consumer, I have no idea. I have no idea how much you know, time or effort goes into this. And that was the part that always struck me is why does the person with the least information bear all the risk? Yeah. Well, the other analogy I would use, I would compare it to when you're buying a house. You have a real estate agent whose job it is to negotiate on your behalf, but their commission is based on a percentage of the purchase price. So how much incentive do they really have to negotiate a lower price for you when they're hitting themselves in the wallet? Absolutely. And, but, and I think you brought up something just to touch on uh, another point you brought up there. Again, what is not understood outside of law is that most lawyers don't like the billable hour either. No. Like most will agree with you that, Hey, this, this system does is not fun. It incentivizes you, as you mentioned to like 
sit at your desk as long as possible. It's oftentimes the quality of work isn't judged, just the amount of time build. And I mean, I know firsthand me and Brett worked at a, a big firm by Canadian standards anyway. And uh, during my articling year, I, I, I like I got shingles because I was so stressed out from trying to meet these demands that, you know, even as a young person, I was starting to break down. And and this isn't new. Like you see people take sabbaticals and not come back. You see people quit, you know, these firm practices at an early age because they're just tired of it. And so it's it's interesting that oh, in your opinion, why have we maintained this if it seems to be almost unanimous? The clients don't like it. The lawyers don't like it. Why are we still here? Because nobody's thought of anything better. It's really like that old Winston Churchill quote that, you know, democracy is a very flawed system of government. And it's really the worst, except for everything else that's ever been invented. <laughs> and, and I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, you get the gist. Absolutely. Um, and the reason I think we're to this point, and I got some feedback in some of the comments on my LinkedIn posts that was helpful to me in understanding context and history. But the reason we got to this point really was just a breakdown in trust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it used to be that a lawyer would do a project and they'd send the client the bill and there wouldn't be an hourly breakdown. They're certainly not breaking it down in like six minute increments. Mm -hmm. And the client would just pay it. And then it got to the point where they felt like they were being overbilled and then they're nickel and diming the client and then the client's trying to figure out ways around that. And it's just this tit for tat that has resulted in the mess we have now with billable hours. Totally. And, and I think another, I 100% like recognize that history piece. And, you know, I love the, you know, at good lawyer, at least, you know, we're trying to revert back to like where we started mm -hmm. with more transparency, more upfront. And now we have the tools where, you can, you know, average prices out across an entire country. So it's, you know, not, there is that transparency and that we can build that trust into a platform. But once we got to the billable hour, you know, I think another big piece of it is, you know, at least from my experience, the larger firms tend to push the profession in certain directions. And we're starting to see more coming up from the bottom through technology. Um, but the big firms do seem to still kind of lead the way with a lot of these practices. And my problem with it is you have the decision makers in these firms closest to retirement and they have no, you know, residual equity once they leave the partnership. And so they have no incentive to change things and they've been doing it for their entire career. Why would I change now when I'm so close to the end? But those are the big decision makers because I think the, the lower you go on the totem pole, the more interest I've seen. The more junior the lawyers, the more interest in doing things in, in different ways than the norm. But once you get sucked into that world, I, I you know, you kind of see it after like one or two, maybe three years that, that lawyer culture has permeated these new lawyers and uh, they want their it, peace. <laughs> it, it, it just, it just, be, it just becomes, well, this is how we do it. And you know, this is how we do it. Yeah. Well, a lot of it too, is that the decision makers are typically, 70 year old white guys who are pretty um, backward on technology. You know, I, I worked with a law partner earlier in my career who he didn't really type. He didn't send emails. He didn't really understand how any of that worked. So either his assistant did it or, you know, he's faxing people stuff. The, the Nebraska Supreme Court is ending or talking about ending fax filing. They're going to make everybody do electronic filing now. And, you know, it's 2021, guys. This is just. <laughs> that seems pretty reasonable. Like. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, there's still going to be older attorneys who are upset with that. And these are the people that run firms. That's not the way we've done it. I've practiced for 45 years. That's not the way it works. 
And then money is an incentive too. A lot of the things you could do in terms of adopting technology for like e-discovery, for um, all different types of law practice related purposes would actually reduce billable hours that you could bill to the client and cost the firm money. So well, why are we going to use e-discovery tools? I mean, I've heard the exact same stuff, you know, yeah. fed to me when I was practicing. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's what the associates do. That's what the law clerks do. We can bill all of that. Why would we? And, you know, it really highlights the problem with billable hours and kind of skewing incentives. But why would we reduce the amount of billable time and the amount of profit? Sure, yes. it's good for the client. But if the client doesn't insist on it, why are we doing something that hits us in the wallet? That doesn't make any sense. I know. And then, and then I just love coming back to this beautiful stat pulled from, I mean, it's a horrific stat, but for our purposes, it really helps tell the story. And it comes from the Clio report, I think 2018 or 2019, 77% of legal needs going unmet. Yeah. So, and it's just like something that lawyers forget. Like they just discount this huge segment of society, three quarters that don't use their services. Right as well yeah they can't afford a lawyer so we're not interested in them instead of like digging in there being like there's tons of legal needs here how can we how can we yeah how can we service all of these people who want to buy lawyer time lawyer expertise just not at three four five six hundred bucks an hour right when we have a huge problem here in nebraska because um nebraska the way that it's set up most of the population is on the eastern side of the state the western part is pretty rural and pretty desolate. So we have the most counties, I believe, of any state in the country where there's no lawyer. Wow. So, you know, if you're a farmer, you're a rancher, you live in a small town out there, good luck. I mean, you might, unless you have a lawyer who's comfortable doing business via Zoom, and maybe more of them are now kind of in the pandemic era, you're driving maybe a couple hundred miles every time you need to talk to your lawyer. Totally. And how, do you, find, how do you find a good one? And a lot of the lawyers who practice out, some are good, some are bad, but you certainly have a lot less selection. Mm -hmm. So I do want to get, uh, have more of that discussion about technology, how it can help the profession and as well as some of the drawbacks, because I, I, you've written a really interesting article about some of the potential issues that need to be monitored when implementing technology. But beforehand, and just so we're not accused of straw manning this argument, from a practical perspective, you know, obviously, yes, we know there's an incentive for money. We know that it's the way it's always been done. But is there other reasons? Like I'm thinking maybe in the sense of litigation, the bill, like what's the alternative to a billable hour? Because it's very difficult in certain cases. And the lawyers, this seems to be one of the favorite arguments is, hey, law is complex. We don't know what's going to be coming. And it's very difficult to bill based on project. I, I do think there is some credence to that argument. But is, is, that, is, that, is that enough? Or what do you think are, are the actual practical brass tax issues of getting away from this billable hour? Well, you know, as you mentioned, the, the most uncertainty is in litigation. And the obvious solution on the plaintiff side is to do it based on commission. I mean, based on like contingency fee. Interesting. So typically it's um, cost plus a third is sort of the standard in the United States. It can vary a little bit based on complexity or whatever, but it's cost plus a third of whatever. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it can be. That's um, more than Canada. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it can be a quarter. It can be 40%. That's sort of the range, but a third is about the average. Um, so that's an option on the plaintiff side for litigation. On the defense side, I think that the information is out there, as you guys kind of alluded to earlier. It's just a matter of using it. So the logic is, well, I don't know how long it's going to take to draft a brief in opposition to a motion for summary judgment on a discrimination case. 
you know, I've done a few of those. It depends on the complexity of the case, how much evidence is involved, how much legal research has to be done. Okay, understood. But if you took all of the information, all of the different law firms in a state or region or country had, and had machine learning crunch all those numbers, you could come up with an average that would be pretty spot on. Right. Well, and it's actually interesting. Me and Brett are actually writing a, 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 a thought piece, if you will, uh, about that very issue. And actually, I, uh, my family comes from the automotive industry. And one of the things uh, that they have is mechanics have uh, a book of job times. And it's sort of like par in golf, where a good mechanic will get this job done in X amount of time. Now, what's beautiful about that is, you know, if you if you innovate and you get better at your job, you can do it in less time and pocket the difference, which is great because now the customer's happy and you're happy. You're making more. You can take on more clients, whatever the case may be. But if you are not, if you're above that time, well, you got to get better. You know, yeah. you have to increase your skills and now you're incentivized. I feel like there's a better alignment of incentives. And to your point, we have the data now. We have the data. Right. We know what the average time takes, but we don't seem to be implementing it. I, I got just- a couple of things I got to chime in here. With. One, <laughs> sure. Matt, and you know, in that, uh, what's it called? What's the book called in the auto world? I, it's, I, I'll the have black, to look it up. Yeah, it's the, yes. the black book with all the pricing. One of the One of the options is custom, right? Like, we don't have a quote for this. Correct. So this is the average rate per hour. So there is that flexibility, but yeah, there's a diagnostic. Yeah. Just because we can't identify every price in the world of law doesn't mean we can't identify a lot of the common ones. And that's, you know, what the, the book in the mechanic world does. And, you know, I've been planning this for a long time and Tom, we might have to engage you a little down the road when we're ready for this. Love to help. The, the, the good lawyer calculator. And that's exactly what it is, a standardized way to price law in a large jurisdiction. Yeah. Like we could easily do that across Canada. And I see no reason why it couldn't be done across all the states in the U.S. as well. I just wonder if firms would be willing to share that information. They will when they see the firms that are using it Mm -hmm. are getting more customers. Because ultimately, it's what the customers want. If the customers, like that's why Good Lawyer has been blowing up in the past year. We provide them total transparency right? and we're growing faster. I guarantee you than any law firm in Canada. And it's because of transparency. Yeah. I think they would appreciate that and just have some predictability. And then, you know, in the long run, hopefully rebuild that trust because, you know, if you're hiring lawyers, you don't trust, you're hiring the wrong lawyers. And if you're a lawyer and you're doing business with clients that you don't trust, you've got the wrong clients. So we've got to figure out a way to rebuild that so that it isn't constant suspicion and constant trying to kind of one up the other. Well, and I, and again, I think, you know, in the mechanic world, the onus doesn't fall on each individual mechanic to come up with a pricing guide. There is an industry standard that, you know, small shops, big shops, whoever can leverage to come up with their pricing. And so that's what I see is, you know, I I've experienced this all the time because I help lawyers quote jobs constantly and quoting jobs scares them. Like it's something they haven't done before. You know, you got a ton of arts grads doing law. They're not, you know, math buffs. And the idea of quoting a job is, is a little bit scary. And so they avoid it. They stick with what's easy. It's not even because they necessarily want to, it's just easy to go with the billable hour. And so by helping them quote these jobs and come up with fixed fee jobs, we've seen that just takes this huge burden off of lawyers and they can just focus on being lawyers. Right. And it's really tough too. I've been in a position where I've been asked to do like litigation budgets and trying to anticipate, okay, six months down the road, 
here are the depositions we're going to take and here's how long they're going to take. And that gets really tough. Mm -hmm. So anything that is sort of a metric you could peg it to that would give some predictability, I think would be really helpful. Totally. And again, you know, I think in they, they estimate billion dollar construction projects all the time. If you can estimate a billion dollar construction project, there's no reason you can't estimate within, you know, a rough, you know, um, estimate over, yeah, a rough over under for even a litigation file. And if something way outside the scope comes up, you change order, you know, that's, that's the term in the right. construction industry, change order, the right. scope change, change order. Here's a new price, confirm the price and let's move on. Well, and you just, it's a reason to have a conversation with the client and visit with them about, Hey, we thought this was headed one way. Now it's headed this other way. This is going to cost a little more. Here's why. And totally. I think clients appreciate those conversations too. A hundred percent. And then you don't, then you get rid of all the fat of the actual timekeeping work. You eliminate this animosity between the, the client and the lawyer. And, right. you know, even in my own experience, when we first started good lawyer and I was trying to get lawyers to quote jobs and one lunch I remember had something to do with litigation and he outlined exactly the first two or three steps that he would have to take. And I was like, can you provide a quote for those? He's like, ah, I don't know. It kind of depends. I'm like, would you do those for 500 bucks? And he said, absolutely. I'm like, okay, we there got a go. quote. Then we got a quote. Like, there we go. Yeah. Right. Well, sometimes yeah, people overthink it too. So, yeah. Well, and I've also had conversations with tons of lawyers about, you know, oh, I'm going to lose money at that price. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're going to make a thousand dollars because if you don't do that job, you're going to do no job <laughs> and you're going to be looking for it. And that goes back to another Clio stat, which is, you know, those small firm solo lawyers, they're only generating revenue with 20% of their week. Like yeah. 80% of their week is going into trying to figure out how to make money with one day a week. So we, we alluded to it a bit before Tom, but, um, Obviously, the legal profession has been a little bit slow on the uptake with technological innovation and adoption. Um, now, there's, there's, again, a debate raging about how the advantages and disadvantages, but someone who is a, a, an expert in this area, can you, do, you, um, do you have an idea why the legal industry is so far behind other industries when it comes to adopting technology? The culture of law is very old school and very traditional. And the people that run the law firms tend to be the oldest people in the room and the slowest adopters of new technology. Um, just to give you an example, I thought this was hilarious. I saw an article, I think it was in the New York Times maybe a year ago, but it was about how if you took a property attorney from say the 1400s in England who had been frozen in permafrost and thawed him out, it would only take one semester of law school to get him up to speed <laughs> where he could practice now. That's crazy. And, and it's funny, but it's kind of horrifying that the practice of law has been so stagnant. And to your question, I mean, I, I think it really shows what we're up against. I mean, we have lawyers in Nebraska who still insist on fax filing, who don't know how to use email, who don't know how to, you know, attach documents to an email. Um, you just have a lot of resistance, even among the judiciary. You have a lot of judges who are older and we've always done it this way. In my courtroom, this is how it works. As a young lawyer, I remember driving to North Platte, which is probably four hours each way for a 15 minute hearing because the judge wasn't comfortable getting on a webcam or the phone and just figuring it out over the phone. So, I mean, you have so much wasted time and so much wasted effort and paper that could be eliminated if people would kind of get with the program and make sure their technological skills are up to par. 
And you yeah. see, and you see and a lot of um, like the ethical requirements for lawyers are starting to include that too. I mean, the part of being a competent attorney is being up to speed on basic technology you need to practice law. And I think that's long overdue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think the big piece there is the cost of not adopting new technology and new processes. And for me, that's the thing that just seems to not get enough attention Attention is what is the cost of status quo? Yeah. Because to me, well, it seems pretty extreme. And it creates danger for clients too. If you're faxing medical records, and you have HIPAA issues or you're sending email and you don't, you're not clear on exactly how that needs to be protected or encrypted so that client secrets aren't being sort of tossed out on the internet. So, I mean, there's a competency there that you need to have at a basic level, at least just to protect clients and client information and client records. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, I think that's really what our focus has been at good lawyer from, from that perspective is trying to, you know, slowly, but surely build as much of that into a platform to make lawyers' lives easier because, right. you know, that's another thing that I always like to highlight is lawyers are stressed and like their lives are not easy lives. There's so many things you have to keep in mind. There's an expectation of, you know, near perfection all the time. And it can be hugely burdensome, especially if you're at one of those small shops where you don't have an assistant and a marketing team and an accounting group, you know, where you're doing all of those things yourself and trying to stay up to date on the laws and providing good client support, you know, it's a lot of things to do. When I think it's important to reinforce once again, how soul sucking it is to have to record what you do with each six minutes of your time <sighs> for your so, entire so life. Soul sucking. Yeah. It, <laughs> it changes the diet. It changes how you look at life. Yeah. Yeah. No. It does. Everything, everything is pick one or the other, pick having a life versus building more time for work. And, you know, there are firms here in Omaha, and I don't think it's unique to Omaha. I'm sure it's not. It's probably worse elsewhere, where they send out scorecards that show who's billed the most and who's billed the least that month in the firm. Um, there's one firm here in Omaha I'm aware of that has a scoreboard in their break room that has the highest performers and lowest performers for the month on it. So you're, you're eating lunch oh. in the break room, and you're being publicly shamed for being on the low end of the list. And maybe you're on the low end of the list because you took time off for a kid's birthday party or to go on a vacation with your family or to actually live your life. And then you're being shamed for it all the time. That clock is always hanging over your head. I would have always been at the bottom of that list. Yeah, probably me too. <laughs> well, and you know, even within the firm environment, I was able to find ways to add value that were unique and yeah. not totally based on simply the hours I build. But if, and- it's not, if it's not billable and it doesn't bring in billable work for others... They'll pay lip service to it, but they don't care. Totally. And thankfully, some of that was bringing in billables for others. So I got a little bit more of a leash, but uh, absolutely. And actually, the number one thing that I wanted to highlight on that exact topic is mentorship. Yeah, it's a huge deal. They don't reward you for mentorship. So it it doesn't happen. It, It happens in such a weird ad hoc, if you're lucky sort of way. You know, yeah. like you, you have to basically befriend. That's what I did. I just made the, the guy senior to me, my best friend. And, you know, Nolan, if you're listening, uh, showed me the ropes, but that was fluky. And, yeah. you know, that was, that's not well, what every, everybody falls into. Like my, my wife is a lawyer here in Omaha also. And she was sent to a trial to try the case. I don't think she'd been to a trial before 
to watch or observe or learn. Um, and you read about and hear about stuff like that happening all the time because these firms don't have a mentorship program. They don't have a training program. There's no thoughtful no spilt into that. And a lot of that is because the people who would be responsible for the training can't build that time. And then if they're, you know, taking associates or law clerks along on depositions or trials or whatever, the associates and law clerks can't build that time. So there are some monetary disincentives for mentorship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I highlighted one of my LinkedIn posts, the burden of that falls really heavily on women and minorities because it's harder for them to find advocates in law firms. Mm-hmm. You know, you get into this place where there aren't people that look like you. There aren't people that share your life experience. It's much more difficult to find people to be advocates for you and be looking to find ways to include you in the lunch with the client or the conference call on the case. Or yeah. Or the, or the 18 holes on the golf course. Absolutely. <laughs> so then Tom, do you think that technology as a whole is a good thing? Cause you recently wrote a piece on um, some of the downsides of implementing technology and in particular with algorithmic bias mm-hmm. and some of the negative uh, consequences that can come apart uh, with implementing technology before really thinking about all the implications of it. Do you want to maybe go over your approach? If you were the head of a, you know, a law firm, how you would go about implementing some of this new technology that can obviously save time, but also, also you need to be careful. Technology is a tool. So, I mean, it's basically like a hammer. You can use it to build a house or you can use it to beat somebody over the head with. It really depends on how you use it. Technology has some real, really important um, features that'll be helpful to law firms in terms of taking some of the most menial work and some of the most just kind of repetitive mind numbing work. I'm thinking about like document review at a very basic level and automizing those. And most people have already done that. Even smaller firms have companies that they'll outsource that to to help with that. So it's been hugely helpful in that way. We have to be very cautious though and very thoughtful about technology generally. Um, And I've written about algorithmic bias. That's something that's kind of a hot topic. And Lawyers have to understand that because as we have basically computer programs making more and more decisions that people used to make, um, we have to be questioning those and we have to be understanding at a basic level, how do algorithms work? And then what problems are there with them making decisions? So they're wrong quite a bit of the time. They are just absolutely filled with biases, racial biases, gender biases, every bias you can think of. And they don't allow people to tell their own story. So they, they can't provide context. Mm-hmm. And as we use them in employment decisions, we use them in criminal justice related decisions, we use them in healthcare decision making, we have to be very thoughtful about, okay, what, what are the potential issues with that? Are they making decisions fairly? Are these decisions just or ethical? And if not, how do we sort of unpack that? And as lawyers, if necessary, how do we challenge those in court? And do you have, so do you have any advice? Because as you mentioned in your article, I mean, the problem with algorithms is that they're made by humans essentially. And we bring in our own biases. So even if we're trying to create a bias free uh, system, well, our biases are almost baked in. So it seems like almost an unbreakable problem to some way. So is that just uh, a responsibility that we'll have to live with the lawyer to make sure that, you know, these things are creating the, the proper outcomes or how would you approach that? I think you need more ethicists in the software industry who are knowledgeable about bias and knowledgeable about the problems that can be baked into the algorithms. A part of the problem too, though, is our society. And 
a lot of the problems with algorithm, algorithms end up being learned. So, you know, a few years ago, I don't know if you guys read about it, but Google had a bot that it taught to post on Twitter. And the basic instructions were, okay, here are the 140 characters. This is how this basically works, go. It took about 24 hours for the bot to start posting incredibly racist and homophobic and misogynistic. I totally remember this. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a they white supremacist shut- bot. Yeah, they had to shut it down. And part of it was that Twitter is just such a mess, like we talked about before, Yeah, which is why I avoid it. But part of it, too, is that people figured out what it was and started basically manipulating it to see what they could get it to post. But I mean, it shows you how, even if you start with sort of that blank slate without any problems baked in, 24 hours later, you've got crazy racist bot saying horribly atrocious things. So you've got to figure out a way to protect the algorithms from learning in a way that corrupts them. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's historical bias, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, ha- it, it has to be based on things that happened before for it to, you know, learn. Right. And so it's always going to have those historical biases baked into it. Right. And that's why I think, you know, lawyers, uh, you know, not a big proponent on law firms, but lawyers, I am a huge proponent of because, you know, lawyers really are sort of the, you know, morality of society, like they enforce it. And I think that requires that empathy, that human touch that a computer is never going to have, you know, well, you I, have to. it's an educational piece too, where, you know, that article that you're talking about, Matt, we wrote for the bar here in Nebraska, and that's available online. But, you know, one of the projects that Dr. Aaron McCain and I are working on is with the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, to teach high school kids about algorithmic bias. Because they just need to understand these, these decisions these computer programs are making are going to affect your lives. And you need, to, you need to realize that and be able to push back if necessary. A lot of people are pretty oblivious to what's happening. And, Absolutely. You know, and as lawyers, we, we have to realize, and too many don't, that as you alluded to, Brett, you have data that these algorithms are using to make decisions. There are huge amounts of bias that are built into that data. So if you have an algorithm, say, that's trying to decide what part of town needs to be policed for like a predictive policing algorithm, it's looking at historical data that's based on decades, if not centuries, of police harassing African-Americans, harassing Black people. And as a result of that, you have maybe increased arrest levels in those areas. The algorithm interprets that as, okay, well, that's where we need to send police. There are more arrests there. Well, now you're sending police to areas to interact with African-Americans in a probably negative way where they're looking for trouble because historically the data is telling them there's been a lot of trouble here. Yeah. And we've yeah. seen tons of examples of how that works out in the real world. So, yeah, very dangerous. And I would assume that if we tried to bring this into a standard legal practice, that some of these same issues would emerge. Uh, and, you know, obviously, I think you, you touched on it there that the advent of technology can definitely help with that menial stuff. But it seems like we need to be, as a profession, very uh, cognizant of how these are implemented and making sure that they uh, are protected and generating the types of outcomes that we want. And it's going to touch on every area of law, if Absolutely. it's not already. So if you're an employment lawyer, you're going to have a client who doesn't get a job because an algorithm looked at them during an interview and said they're not trustworthy. Right. And if you do healthcare law, you're going to have a patient who's denied a procedure because an algorithm looked at them and said they're not in as much pain as they thought they were. And if you're a criminal justice lawyer, you're going to have a client who's denied probation or parole because of the algorithm, what the algorithm told the judge about them. 
And this isn't theoretical. In your no. article, you highlighted Amazon, that very thing happening where it started uh, it, in their employment decisions. It started putting, uh, I believe it was male heavy uh uh, candidates to the like top almost because, 100% or something. yeah because because the historical data tended to be fairly male and and all of that and uh, obviously even though they may want to be moving away from that that algorithm tripped up on that component yeah and i think that might have been a google but oh was it google okay my bad but basically yeah it was find people who've been successful here historically and it's okay white guys in their 20s so right. go find me a bunch more of those uh, and, absolutely. and then women who have you know a female name or women's in their resume you know it's tossing those in the waste bin mm -hmm. so we, have to be we have to be really thoughtful and careful about how they're making decisions and double check their work yeah yeah such an interesting topic and obviously something that's going to be living on for quite a few years here as we uh move more and more to that that area do you do you, just a quick question do you, yeah, do you see there being like standardization because one of the other issues i see with law and like our slow adoption is how fragmented the world of law is mm -hmm. you know both in terms of even the largest law firms account for a tiny little fraction of the market and each, you know, jurisdiction being each, every single state, every single province has its own regulatory body. How do you see, you know, collectively the implementation of these types of algorithms or, you know, more advanced technology, do you see them adopting them together or is it going to be totally ad hoc? I'm hoping it's together to the extent it can be. And that's one of the research projects that Dr. McCain and I are working on is if you were able to build sort of a ethical matrix that you would weigh these emerging technologies against to determine whether they can be deployed in practice or what the problems with them might be, what would that look like? How accurate would they need to be? How free from bias would they need to be? How able to understand context would they need to be in order to tell a story? Yeah, how, per how, how persuasive is their usage is kind of what I'm hearing because it still seems to me like every law society or every bar association would have to independently agree to use it because there's no overarching authority. I, I think what you would end up having, at least here in the U.S., is some adoption in the federal rules of evidence mm. that would explain when they can be used and when they can't. Right. For example, now the predominant standard is called Daubert. And you basically have to show that the technology has been vetted, the technology is reliable, the technology is used in the industry. Um, so you'd have some, some type of Daubert analysis here in the U.S. Uh, that would determine when these could be used and when they couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I do want to be cognizant of your time here. I'm, I'm noticing we're fast catching up to the top of the hour. But before, uh, before we bring this to a close, you're also a law professor. So under the umbrella of everything already discussed, uh, just maybe give me some of your thoughts around how we are currently educating our future lawyers. And if you have any thoughts on how that may have to change with, uh, again, all the things that we're seeing emerged in the legal profession. One of the problems with the education of attorneys, and I kind of alluded to it with the permafrost lawyer I talked about before, is that it just like hasn't it. changed. <laughs> it hasn't changed enough. You know, if you guys haven't seen it, um, Saturday Night Live used to have a sketch with a character called Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. Um, <laughs> I missed that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, check I'll write that down. Bill <laughs> Hartman played him. It was hilarious, but kind of same concept. But we have to get young attorneys, these law students are going to be young attorneys. We have to make them much more conversant in technology. Some of that they're going to have naturally just based on their age. There's a higher comfort level, but we have to send them out into practice more comfortable with technology. 
particularly with respect to the stuff we've been talking about, big data, algorithms, emerging technology, that's going to be their world and they have to be ready to deal with it. I'm not sure the older professors who are maybe a little more technology challenged in law schools are able to teach them the stuff they need. Right. So that's, that's a challenge. Law school right now, at least in the U.S., is three years of pretty much solid theoretical knowledge taught in a classroom. What I would do to improve law school is to reduce it from three years of theoretical in-classroom learning, which is what it is now, at least in the U.S., to two years of that and then one year of really supervised practical training. And that could be in a law firm, that could be in a corporation, that could be doing internships or clerkships or practicums or pro bono work. But you're getting into corporate legal departments, you're getting into the courtroom, you're getting your feet wet in a way where you still have some supervision or training and sort of a safety net. Mm -hmm. So many lawyers find that when they graduate, they don't have the practical skills they need to really be useful. So they understand, um, you know, nuances about torts, but they don't know how to write a brief or (laughs) they've never seen a contract. Yeah. They don't know how to draft a contract. They don't know how to file a case, file a lawsuit. Um, and, And it's really a deficiency I see in legal education right now. Totally. And it, and, it, and it puts a huge onus on the lawyer that, you know, is the principal in the articling relationship, or I guess maybe it's a little bit different in the States. Um, but certainly in Canada, it puts a ton of onus on lawyers that hire those students to do all the practical training. Right. And, and I couldn't agree with you more about the, you know, reduction of the theoretical down from three to two years. Yeah. I mean, I spent my last semester of law school in Sweden and not learned, you know, a little bit of Russian law and that was about it. And I was, you know, no worse for wear when I got to private practice. So, um, and we already talked about how difficult it is for lawyers to get good young lawyers to get good training and mentoring because nobody can really bill that time. Exactly. When you have them going into the real world without that experience, and then they've got to be trained up to even be functional at a basic level. What are the law schools doing for three years? Totally. You know, by by the third year, you're taking a lot of, really theoretical electives you don't really care about totally yeah how how, how am i going to boost those grades up you know right and and the first two years by contrast i found super enlightening especially first year first year was learning a totally new way to think learned a tremendous amount second year was a a pretty solid carry-on of that but third year felt completely redundant when they say you know the first year they scare you to death the second year they work you to death the third year they bore you to death and it's true Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, that's not, I've been here three years. That's, hey, law school, you're kind of failing me because we both realize this is sort of a waste of everybody's time at this point. And the most prepared lawyers that I ever saw coming out of law school were the most involved in like the student legal aid and those types of programs. Right. They were prepared because they'd done it. And those yeah. litigation classes, I took everyone I could, um, where you're really doing all the practices and the role plays and the, the moots exercises and moot courts and oral arguments and running the gamut, but even more valuable, like you said, to get out and actually be in a courtroom making an argument. 
absolutely. Yeah, no question about it. I, and I'll just reiterate that. I know when I showed up at the firm, I mean, it was trial by fire because, you know, all these concepts that you knew existed, but you had literally no idea how to do, like incorporating a company. How do you do that? And, you know, it, it obviously you learn pretty quickly, but I, I certainly agree that law schools could do a little bit better of a job of uh, helping lawyers be prepared for say dramatically practice. better. And it's cool. We've got a couple of programs in Canada that really are pushing that out yeah. in Ontario. So um, to, we are making and, some headway. And to your point, Matt, how sad is it that after three years of law school, if I had been asked to incorporate a company, I would have started by plugging that into Google and looking at instructions, exactly. Wikipedia or something, you know? That's exactly what I did. I, I'm almost certain is like, how do you do this? Oh, okay. And, and then you go ask the, uh, you know, the legal assistants and the paralegals who know way more about, about law than you do at that point. And Absolutely. they, uh, they help hold your hand until you get, get up to speed. But uh, yeah, you know, that, that's certainly something you should know how to do those basic things coming out of law school. Yeah, there, there's just a, a much better way to do it. And if Absolutely. they weren't focused on doing it the same way they've done it for the last 600 years, they would <laughs> adapt and evolve. Excellent. Well, Tom, look, we really appreciate you coming on. But uh, Tom, as a final question, I just want to know, do you have any resources that you really recommend, whether that be to law students or, or you know, early lawyers that maybe has helped you on your journey that you think would be helpful to them on theirs? The thing I keep coming back to is how important it is to read and just be knowledgeable about the world, because there are going to be connections out there. There are going to be stories out there. There are going to be names of people out there that you will be able to connect in ways that will help you and then ways that will help your clients. They'll improve your understanding of the world. You'll get some backstory on things that will end up helping you in cases, understand like the relationships between different, um, different people, different companies, different parts of government, and also just pleasure reading. A lot of lawyers don't do that because we spend most of our lives, most of our work lives reading. Pleasure reading is so important just because it improves your mind, it improves your brain, you are developing an understanding of things, it helps with your ability to empathize, and it gives you good stories to tell. So much of being a good lawyer is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And if you, you can quote Shakespeare or Faulkner or Hemingway in a brief, um, that puts you one up on a lot of lawyers who can't. Absolutely. So many, so many of the themes we deal with in practice, particularly in litigation, are themes that you can find in different stories or books. And if you can tell a good story, it makes you such a better lawyer. No question about it. Sage advice, uh, storytelling is something I'm currently working on, but I think you're exactly right in the sense that I did not read for pleasure for probably a decade. And I've just recently got back into it. And to your point, it just it allows you to connect the dots a little bit easier if you have a wide base of knowledge. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you uh, agree with this, uh, that, you know, we learn by analogy and having that, uh, uh, knowing a little bit about some other things outside of law really helps you inside law be better at what you're doing. So, uh, and yeah, and you obviously mentioned some great authors there. So that's great. Thank you very much once again for coming on today. Uh, we greatly appreciate it and, and had some uh, excellent words of advice and, and wisdom for, uh, for us as well as all of our listeners. So we greatly appreciate it. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please rate, download, and subscribe. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.